Good morning. I see we have a, an esteemed guest, two esteemed guests with us this morning. It's good to have you guys. Good to see you. Good to see you. I've really enjoyed working through the series of simply looking at God the last, I guess, nine or ten weeks now. Uh, there are far too many weighty points to summarize them all, but at least two. I'm always going to come back to these as we talk about Yahweh. God made the world for God. It's not rocket science, I don't think. God made the world for God. He is the only reason anything exists. We looked at those passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 46 in particular. I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. And of course, we see that in the text. We're going to see that in the text this morning. God does whatever He pleases, whenever He pleases, however He pleases, and He doesn't consult with His creatures. Yesterday we were talking to the Zoomers over in Europe, and uh, we, we got to talking about repentance. And I realized, really, some of us need to repent from our low view of God. We've talked about this a lot in the last eight or nine or ten weeks, however long it's been. But the foundational meaning of repentance must be I have to change my mind about who he is in my life, right? It's not about me. It's always about him. Whatever comes today is about him. I'm supposed to process my life through understanding it's about him. It's always about Christ. Christ is the point. He's always the point. He's never not the point. This is always true. Every day you live. This is always true. We have to change our mind about who we think God is. It's why I keep asking you this question. We must reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. And I'm asking you, have you really reckoned with that? He's your creator. You know, come to terms with, as we've been talking about, come to terms with the potter and the clay. Honestly, I've been in church all my life. I meet many, many people who've never really dealt with it. They don't understand the potter and the clay thing. They really don't. It's not visible in their life. You don't hear it in their speech. It's all about the glory of God. And I noticed, um, as I was looking at in the next few weeks, obviously, we're not meeting the next two weeks on Sunday evening, but once we get back, we're going to be, we've got three chapters of the love of God. Okay, and I'm trying to help you understand why I'm in John 11. We've got three chapters on the love of God. And we talked about the love of God last week, just a little bit, as we talked about his patience with us. How many times did you sin this week? Why are you still walking around? The wages of sin is death. Why are you still walking around? Why am I still walking around? If that's true, God is patient. And with his people, he's gracious. So we saw that. Last week, and we touched on God's love, and I gave you this quote from John Piper. Uh, I know you guys get tired, tired of me quoting John Piper, but it's not my fault. He keeps saying good stuff. Piper writes, The ultimate aim of perfect love would be God's gift of himself for the everlasting enjoyment of his people. And that's what we've been saying. Why anything? Why everything? For the glory of God and the joy of his elect. Piper continues, God does this in such a way, I love this, that the whole panorama of God's glorious attributes would be known to the greatest clarity and enjoyed to the greatest intensity. It's why I'm in John 11. You saw the title of the sermon, I trust, Love 
glory, joy. It's John 11. It's Christianity. It's Christmas. <laughs> right? So this is a precursor, I hope. It's a freebie. It's not part of the series. It's just free stuff because, you know, I'm a gracious man. So this is just free. This is not part of the series. God's glory, God's love, and our joy. It's been bouncing around in my heart all week, so I had to go to John 11. And why is it related to Christmas? Because I want you to remember who this baby is. When you celebrate the birth of our Lord this week, I always want you to remember who this baby is, right? This is not some heart-dead, brain-dead, religious holiday. My Creator took on flesh. And He calls people out of the tomb. Right? He called you out. If you know Him this morning, you were Lazarus and He called you out. Now, if you can't get worked up over Christmas, you're not thinking about it. Or you're simply looking at the wrong thing. So let's jump right into the text. We're going to try to, I'm going to try to cover 44 verses, so um, you can pray for me. You heard Joe read the text, first few verses here. We understand who these folks are, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. They live in Bethany. Uh, this is the Mary who will wipe Jesus' feet. We'll see that in chapter 12, or you could see that in the next chapter if you take a look at it. Verse 3. The sisters therefore sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. Now, I love, I love this picture of prayer, right? I love this. This is the way I pray most of the time. They send word to the Lord. They tell him what the deal is. And they don't ask him to do anything. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to ask of course we can ask, we can seek, we can knock. But many, many times I'm simply led to, to speak it to the Lord and leave it there. I love this. I think to me, you, you may have a different angle on prayer, but for me, I love to just speak the need. Uh, I don't feel like I, sometimes, obviously I can ask him, but I don't feel like I need to ask him all the time. I'm just going to speak the need. Really, it's for me to unburden myself as much as anything. You know, many of us, obviously, we say, Lord, here's our need, and um, here's what I want you to do about it. And here's my timetable. It's not the way it works with Yahweh. It's never worked like that with Yahweh. We should be ashamed to think that we would, you know, talk to Him like that in prayer. Did you notice saying, the Lord, behold, the one whom you love is sick. It's interesting, and I know my Greek scholar, my resident Greek scholar, would, will, he'd probably want me to bring this out. This is phileo, right? This is brotherly love. This is, Jesus loves like a man. He's going to weep later because he loves like a man. He loves his brothers. He loves like a man would love a man. So we have this, this kind of friend relationship, right? I've always loved this about, you know, Jesus calls us friends, and I've always loved that. Sometimes there's something, there's, sometimes there's a, there's a different kind of connection with a friend than there is with a relative. And sometimes it's deeper. You know, Jesus doesn't just love us. He likes us. 
And to me, that's a big deal. He likes us. I don't think we think about that often enough. So I love this spirit of prayer. Just leave it with God. Just leave it with God. He whom you love is sick. So notice the basis on which they come to the Lord is based on uh, how he loves, not how we love. Our love is oftentimes what? Dull, fickle, erratic, inconsistent. But he whom you love is sick. What a great way to, what a great way to bring a need to the Lord. Verses 4 through 6. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed there two days longer in the place where he was. Okay. We got to think about this because if you think it's about you, you're not going to understand this text. If you still think it's all about you, you're not going to understand this text. In fact, you're going to resent this text. The sickness is what? What is this about? What does Jesus say? The sickness is about what? The glory of God. Okay? Why? That the Son may be glorified in it. The sickness is for the glory of God. I just have to ask, is this your first thought? When you, when you become ill, is this your first thought? Or when some, one of your loved ones become, becomes ill, is this your first thought? Is it your second thought? Is it your third thought? Is it your fourth thought? Does it even enter into your mind that God may be doing something? Not may, God is doing something here I don't understand. Beloved, this is how mature Christians ought to think. Right? This is how we process life. God created the world for God. And if I get the cancer diagnosis tomorrow, God's in it. This is all about what God wants to do. It's not about Jim. It's about God. It's always about God. You know, we save ourselves a lot of angst and pain and, and um, concern if we would just look right through the problem and look at our Father who holds all things in His hands, right? Um, so this is a beautiful, beautiful text for us. You know, this, the same thing was revealed over in uh, John's Gospel, chapter 9. You may remember verse 3, the, the disciples asked Jesus, why was this guy born blind? And what, you remember what Jesus said? In order that the works of God might be displayed in him. What's going on in your life? You're a believer. What's going on in your life? Whatever it is, it's that the works of God might be displayed in them. Listen, listen, you, you're a vapor upon the earth. I know, I know it seems like days are hard and sometimes it's difficult. And yes, of course, that's true. We live in this fallen world. But if you're a believer, why has this come to you today? In order that the works of God might be displayed. This is how we have to think. This is how mature Christians think. Biblically literate people think. This is not random. It's God. It's always God. Every day it's God. Yes. Beloved, we need to be thinking like this. It's not about Martha, Mary, or Lazarus in John 11. 
It's about the glory of God. We tend to be so self-centered. We can't think like this. We don't, we don't process life like this. And listen, you may go days, weeks, months, years and not really understand what it's about, but I'm going to ask you, do you have to understand? Is it okay with you if you don't understand? Is it okay? My God's God, He's doing something. I don't get it, but I will real soon because I'm going to see Him in about 10 minutes. You know, the whole vapor thing. The vapor thing. And you just got to, you know, we just got to remember these, things, these basic biblical truths. We don't allow them to inform our lives, unfortunately. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Verse 6, so he stayed two more days in the place where he was. He loved them, so he stayed. He didn't run to, to meet their need. We won't understand this if we're not thinking biblically. In fact, we'll resent it. We won't think worthy thoughts of God here if we're not biblically literate. Some indict him here, right? I've heard, listen, I had a guy in my Sunday school class one time, a long time ago, before I went to seminary. He got all worked up about this. He got mad at me about it because I was teaching it this way. He got mad at me, John 9. He hated that. He hated it. You know, there's just something about being humble before the Word of God, right? Whatever he says, I'm going to receive it. I might struggle with it, but it's okay. Who am I to question God? Jesus, to some, seems callous here. He's letting Lazarus die and Martha and Mary go through this difficult trial. And, you know, some, when they hear that uh, Jesus did this for the glory of God, they just don't like it. They don't like it. Which reveals a huge problem. They have yet to understand what God's glory is to His people. We've been talking about this a lot. What is God's glory to His people? Everything. So hey, so if it's to the glory of God, I'm down with that, right? I'm, I'm down with that. I'm good with that. Hey, I want that. Bring it on. I want that. I want that. You know, it, 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 again, it's not understanding what God's glory is to the people of God. So I fear for people in the church who, who, who kind of turn away from these kind of high sovereignty texts. I struggle with them. I don't understand. You're missing the point here. The point is God and His glory, which is your joy. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that in the text as we move through. So let's make sure we understand the biblical view of divine love. <laughs> right? The biblical view. And if you, you know, if you wrap your mind around this, it changes everything for us. It changes everything for us. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so he stayed two more days. He loved them, so he did not come to them. He loved them, so he did not heal Lazarus. And he loved them, so he tarried, allowing Lazarus to die. He loved them. And, of course, the worldlings and the nominal Christians are saying, how is that love? How could that possibly be love? Well, we're going to find out, aren't we? Yahweh says, this is love. <laughs> Most say, how can it be? We've learned through our series, I think, as we began with Psalm 117, that divine love gives us 
that which is absolutely, supremely, preeminently, and ultimately most precious. Precious, what is that? God himself? <laughs> what did Job get? A revelation. Like no other revelation he'd ever had. You know? God's not overly concerned with your temporal, circumstantial happiness. He's principally concerned that you will delight in His glory. And these people are really going to delight in His glory, right? You know how the story ends. They're really going to delight in God like they've never delighted in God. What did that take? It took a trial. It took a trial that they didn't understand. We were talking with the Zoomers yesterday, and <laughs> we were talking about this, this word intensity. We, we went to that Piper quote, and he, he talks about that word intensity. And I just have to say there's something wrong if you're, not, if you're not working on the intensity of your relationship with the Lord Jesus. Something's not right. Something is awry. If you're not working on the intensity of it, it should be intense. <laughs> there's got to be an intensity to it, right? A purpose to it, a drive to it, a focus to it, an immediacy to it. We talked about it yesterday. You know, sometimes we are spiritually dull and lethargic. It's just natural as human beings, but we have to fight through it, right? This is what the mature Christian is doing. We're fighting through this lack of... Intensity. So divine love is always focused on helping us to see and know and savor God to the maximum degree. This is divine love. And, and we're going to see it, right? We're going to see divine love on display <laughs> before we get to the end of the chapter. Don't you love the Bible? I love the Bible. I love God and I love God's word. God did not create us to be infatuated with ourselves and our own conveniences and comforts and, and, and ease. He made us to be in love with Him. And He's going to bring you there. If you belong to Him, He will bring you there. And whatever circumstance it requires, it's not a problem. He'll do it. This is how much He loves His people. As we noted repeatedly in the series, you were made for the glory of of God, back to Psalm 117. Come and, you know, come and delight in me. Come and enjoy me. We saw it, Psalm 117. I think that's how we started the series. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. What does it mean? It means come and enjoy me. Exclamation point, exclamation point. I think there's three exclamation points there in John 117. It's that, it's that stern and splendid love Lewis talks about, C.S. Lewis talks about. Well, that's what we're seeing here in John 11. The Bible teaches mankind was created for this, to delight in the glory of God. But you guys know what Romans 1 teaches us, that men have exchanged the glory of God for self-love and stuff, right? So Jesus loved Martha, Mary, Lazarus, so he stayed two more days. He loved them. So he's going to do something infinitely more than cure Lazarus. Don't you love this? How God answers bigger than they could have ever thought to ask. Has that ever happened to you? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I love that. Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus so 
He's going to disclose himself in a new, different, and profound way. He loved them so. He's going to give them an up-close and personal glimpse of just exactly who he is. He loved them, so he's going to let them taste awe, wonder, and perfect joy. Perfect joy. Divine love gives us that which is absolutely, preeminently, and ultimately most precious. Again, it's God. It's always God. I want you to learn to think like this. Probably most of you already are. You know, we don't get all consumed with whatever jumps up in our day, right? Yeah, we have to deal with it. That's, that's what it means to walk on the earth. We're going to deal with it. We're going to run it through that grid. We're going to run it through that prism. God's doing something here. How could God be glorified in it? The casual observer would say Christ's delay was unloving. Jesus says, my delay is all about love. <laughs> you got to love it. You got to love it. Oh, you've been praying 10 years about something? Okay, good. Has he delayed? Oh, well, then you can have all the kind of expectation what he's got planned. You may not know what it is until you get into eternity future. Okay, it's okay. I don't care. I don't care. I trust him. I trust him. I trust him. So, verses 7 through 10, you guys know how it goes. Let me just summarize. They, Jesus said, hey, let's go, to, let's go to Judea and deal with this. And um, the disciples aren't jazzed about it because they tried to stone him last time he was in, in uh, Judea. And then Jesus says this in verse 9. Are there not 12 hours in a day if anyone walks in the day? He does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. So Jesus is basically this little, this little saying here. He's talking about the, 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 the 12 hours here is the lifespan meted out to a believer. And basically what he's saying is his, we're bulletproof, right? You're not going to die one second sooner or one second later than God has already ordained. You know Psalm 139. In your book, they were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. I was listening to Johnny Mac preach this, Johnny MacArthur, sorry, John MacArthur, and uh, I love this. He says, your life can't be shortened by being bold. You know, sometimes Christians are afraid to be bold. Well, nothing can happen to you. They can't have you because your days have been numbered, right? And then he says, um, your life cannot be lengthened by shrinking back. Basically what Jesus is saying here. I could develop it further, but I don't have time to do that. So if a sovereign God is for us, you know how that ends. Verse 11. Um, Jesus said to them that our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of the sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll be okay. Jesus had spoken of his death. They didn't understand. Then verse 14. Then Jesus therefore said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I, may, that I was not there so that you may what? Believe. These 11 faithful disciples who will turn the world upside down. God's doing something way bigger than we can begin to understand in our everyday circumstantial lives, right? Yes. yes. Lazarus is sick. Oh, what is it going to lead to? 
Christianity. I mean, we just think too small about our daily lives and what the circumstances mean. Verse 16, Thomas says, hey, let's go with him and we'll die with him. There in verse 16, uh, sidebar here, Thomas, church history tells us Thomas did die in India. And of course, you guys know that uh, all the disciples, but John was martyred. So they ultimately did die with him. But I want to make a point here. Jesus says, I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you might believe. And here's my point. God is always doing a billion things all at once. We get that. But what he's doing in my life, he is, by doing that in my life, doing something in your life. So, what are, you know, he's doing something in Martha and Mary and Lazarus' life. But by doing that, he's doing something in his disciples' lives. Same thing is true for us. I'm supposed to read God off of you. And you're supposed to read God off of me. And this is what Jesus is talking about. The disciples are going to read God off the life of this trial in these people's lives. They're going to read God off of it. I think this is a point that we don't often think about. What God is doing in your life, He is, by doing that in your life, doing something in my life. I'm supposed to read God off of your life. As a Christian in the midst of great trial or great blessing, I'm always on the lookout for God's glory. Always. Always. <laughs> it doesn't matter how small the detail is. We need to be looking for the glory of God. And how important is it? How important is it that we deal with our trials in this kind of way? What is at stake here? What is God going to do? What is God doing with, with this trial that you may what? Believe. These guys are never going to forget this. And when, you know, down the road when it gets hard and everybody's laughing at them and they're being stoned and they're being whipped and they're being thrown in prison. Hey, they remember what they saw. They know who God is. Oh, you're going to beat me? Okay, do your best. I know who he is. I saw what he did. You know, if you read this text and you don't really believe, do you understand why men are responsible? You, you know, we've been talking a little bit about, do you understand why you're responsible? You hear about this, you read about this, and you don't believe a man who calls another man out of the tomb, you don't believe he's God? Do you see why you're responsible? Do you see why we're responsible for God? You know, I had that kid that uh, I used to work with. He was, he was in the warehouse, and he, always, he would say to me, I remember he said, Jim, why doesn't God show me something? I said, other than this? Other than this? Look! Look! You want it? I, I, okay, I got to stop. Um, It's noteworthy here that you'll notice 17, 18, 19. He's been in the tomb four days. This is a big deal. The Jews had this superstition that the spirit would hover over the body uh, for at least three days. So he's, his timing is just perfect here. And so he comes. And let's pick up here in verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. And, but Mary 
still sat in the house. Martha therefore said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that, that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She's talking about the general resurrection that the Jews believed. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall, shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall, shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Now, what does Martha do here? <laughs> Backhandedly, she says, you're late. You should have been here. None of this would have happened if you'd been here. I don't want to be too hard on her. But backhandedly, this is what she's saying. It is exactly what she's saying. And I'm going to ask you, are you I, pray that you're, I pray that none of us are like this with God. <laughs> His timing is always, is always impeccable. It's always perfect. But she's saying, you didn't make it. You should have been here. Where were you? Back, basically in a backhanded way. Obviously, this is a non-biblical, sub-Christian view of Yahweh. The problem is never that God is late. What's the problem? I don't really trust Him. That's the deal. When you're thinking unworthy thoughts of God, where is He? Why, why is He here? Why is He doing something? Unworthy thoughts of God. When you're, when you're entertaining those thoughts, and I'd like for you to remember this passage. I'd like for you to remember this passage. We don't trust Him and we are not willing to submit to His sovereignty. That's what it means when we're questioning God's timing. You know, I've heard preachers say, oh, yeah, you can question God all you want. I, and I've told you this already. I counsel you, don't question God. Don't question God. I mean, we saw it in Job, right? Job had all these complaints he wanted to bring to Yahweh. Well, Yahweh showed up. <laughs> His hand on his mouth. His hand on his mouth. We need to remember these things, beloved. God was right on time. She expresses her faith in him. Notice in the text. I know whatever you do, whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. Jesus says your brother will rise again. And she acknowledges the, the belief in the general resurrection. But here's what I love. Christ is going to take her way deeper than what she generally believes now, right? Isn't that what he always does when he meets us in that hard place? <laughs> He's going to take her to a new place. <laughs> That's what the trial was about, basically. It's about evangelism, for one thing. We already saw that the disciples will believe through this, and many Jews will believe through this. So the trial's about, you know, evangelism, and it's also about this. It's also about going with a deeper view, a deeper love, a deeper appreciation for who Jesus Christ is. She says, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God. So I'll just stop and ask. I don't know if we have any unconverted folks in here. Have you believed? I, and I'm talking about facts. 
Have you believed in such a way that your whole life has changed? Your whole mind has changed about who he is and who you are in relation to him. Your whole mind has changed. He's not just God in some religious way. He is God. He's my God. And it's real. And it's personal. And it means something every day I roll out of bed. So I'll ask you, do you love him? Do you know him? Do you obey him? Do you walk with him? Verses 28 through 32. When she said this, and, and, and she went away and called Mary, told Mary to come out. The master's asking for you. Drop down to verse 31. Some of the, many of the Jews followed her out. Therefore, 30, 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him the exact same thing her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What, an, what a tragedy that would have been. Can you see it from God's perspective? What a tragedy it would have been if he didn't raise Lazarus. What a tragedy for you and for me and every man, woman, boy and girl around the world who's ever been exposed to the Bible. This is John's exclamation point, right? There's seven miracles. This is John's exclamation point. You have no excuse not to believe now. He called a dead man out of the tomb. A dead, a dead and decomposing man out of the tomb. You don't have any excuse. This is John's seventh miracle and his exclamation point. Okay, Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, so he tarried two days. His delay was about God and God's glory and his people's joy. His delay was about what God wanted to do in the lives of this family, in the lives of the disciples, in the lives of the witnesses, and in your life and my life, right? I believe. Is there anybody in here who doesn't believe? It's the whole mantra of our sermon series. You have to reckon with the magnitude of what it means for God to be God. You need to reckon with it. And this man is God. He's the God man. You need to reckon with that. You and I, beloved, need to reckon with that. Do you see how Jesus' delay was all about love to the greatest possible degree? <laughs> Thirty-three through thirty-six. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit, and he was troubled. And he said, "Where have you laid him?" And they said to him, "Lord, come and see." Jesus wept, and so the Jews were saying, "Behold, how he loved him." Yes, this for some reason this mystifies people. Why is God weeping? He's the God-man. He's 100% God, 100% man. So he's obviously infinitely complex. He weeps for his friend, Phileo. And he's about to put his agape on display because he's going to call his Phileo friend out of the tomb. He loved him as a man. He loved him as a friend. 
Now he's going to show his love as God. You got to love the Bible. Got to love it. Jesus was deeply moved. <laughs> they marveled. They said, oh, look how much he loves him. How much does he love him? Well, in a couple of days, what? He's going to be nailed to a tree. That's how much he loves him. A few tears, shedding a few tears is no display of how much he loves him. Shedding his blood will be a display of exactly how much he loves him. Verse 37, okay, here, here come the critiquers, right? <laughs> They're always present. Listen. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the, and they're talking about the guy back in John 9, who opened the eyes of him who was blind, have kept this man from dying? <laughs> Men who question God, it's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. I really, really don't get it. Um, they're trying to reconcile Jesus' power. They saw it in John 9. Jesus' love and Jesus' delay. They can't reconcile it. Oh, guess what? There's going to be a lot of things in your Christian life you can't completely reconcile. And guess what God's people do when they can't do that? They get on their face and they worship a God who works. You know, what's, what's the, the hardest? I'll get this right in a minute. The worst thing that ever happened on the planet, God saved you through it, right? The worst thing that ever happened on this planet, the crucifixion of the Son of God. God takes the very worst thing that could possibly happen in the cosmos and He saves His people. Hey, let's give God plenty of room, right, to do what He's going to do. To do what he's going to do. I love this. Verse 38. Jesus, therefore, again, be, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus wept, but we're about to watch him unleash divine power. The God-man. Verse 39. And listen, I'm going to ask you to put yourself here. You know, you, you, you kind of need, if you're going to read the Bible and get the most you can out of it, sometimes you've got to put yourself in the sandals of the folks that are, that are there. So I, I'm going to just say right now, I want you to put, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to put yourself there. Okay? I want you to put yourself there. Jesus says, 39, remove the stone. Okay, you're there. You're just a bystander. You don't really know who this carpenter guy from Nazareth is. You've heard about him. You don't know much about him. And to your utter disbelief and shock, he says, remove the stone. Now, Mary has kind of a knee-jerk reaction here. She's, gonna, she's going to counsel God on exactly the gravity of the situation. Right? 
isn't that like, isn't that like you and me sometimes? Oh, <laughs> remove the stone and Martha, Lord, there'll be a stench. He's been dead four days. Oh, it's good you let God know that. <laughs> you know, that's really great. Thanks. Thanks, Martha. That was good information. Good talk. She doesn't get what's going on. She doesn't really understand where Jesus is going with this. She's a lot like you and me, I think. She doesn't know how awesome he is, but he's about to show her. And some of us have no idea, right? How awesome our God is. And then sometimes he gives us that glimpse. He's going to give them a huge glimpse here. He's going, to blow up, he's going to blow up their lives. He's going, he's going to blow up the world. Right? That's what he's going to do. Verse 40, Jesus said to, said to Martha, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? The world says seeing is believing. God says believing is seeing. Jesus is saying to Martha, get your eyes off the tomb and look at me. And beloved, that's what I want to say we've been doing for 10 weeks, looking at God. And I hope it's put a spring in your step. I hope it's put a dynamism in your prayer life. I hope you love the word of God coming off the page and you're learning about your father and your creator and your savior. And you're jacked up about it and there's an intensity about it. It's, what, it's part of what's happening here. Stop looking at the tomb and look at me. It's what he's saying. It's what he's saying. It's what this series has been about. It's what the attributes of God's study is all about. <clears throat> Verse 41 and 42. So they removed the stone. Okay, you're just standing there. This carpenter guy from Nazareth says, well, remove it, you can't believe it. And then they do it. They're doing it. They're actually doing it. They removed the stone and Jesus raised his eyes and he prays to the Father, I thank you that you heard me and I know that you... The um, reason I struggle sometimes when I'm reading my, my Bible is because I've written in it so many times. Sometimes I can't actually read the word that's there. Um, <clears throat> that... You, that you hear me always, but because of the people standing around, I said it, that they may believe that you sent me. So Jesus doesn't need to ask for authority to do this. But what he's doing is he's showing that he and the Father are always in perfect concert, right? He's always done this all the way through his ministry. He's just showing that he is in perfect concert with the Father. So are you there? Verse 43. And he said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. You've heard, if you're converted, you've heard this. Lazarus, come forth. You are appalled. You are horrified. You cannot believe. You can see the corpse and you can even smell the corpse. 
And this guy, who does this guy think he is? Putting Martha and Mary through this charade. You could hear a pin drop except for the fact that your heart is beating so hard you can't hear anything. You instinctively hold your breath. Your heart is in your throat. And to your utter shock and terror, the corpse begins to move. The corpse stands up. He shuffles out of the tomb. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Do you feel the, do you feel the fear of it? And the shock of it? Maybe a little terror? The awe and the wonder? Wouldn't you be trembling? In your sandals? That's what God means for you to feel right now in this text. He's God. He really is God. That baby in the manger, he really is God. That man on the cross, he really is God. This is the takeaway. This is John's, this is John's you know, big ending with respect to the miracles. God intends that every man, woman, boy, and girl feel just what you would have felt if you'd been there. And He intends for you to believe. You thought it was just an ordinary day. <laughs> it was an extraordinary day. Jesus leaves no doubt. And I want to say it again. If you don't believe, you have no excuse before God. You're not here by accident. God means for you to hear the truth. And He means for you to respond to it. So Jesus was right, wasn't He? All this had been for the glory of God. And I, I okay. Okay. Love, glory, joy. Now, Okay, let's just say you're still that bystander. Can you imagine Martha, Mary, and Lazarus laughing uncontrollably? Because he died! But now he lives! God does this kind of stuff! God does this! Nobody else can do this! Only God does this! And they're laughing uncontrollably, which is what a lot of eternity will be about, I think. And we saw it, didn't we, in this text, the foundational, fundamental, theological, biblical truth. God's pursuit of His glory is, I've been saying this over and over and over again, God's pursuit of His glory is the believer's joy. And there they are, laughing uncontrollably. So I, I tried to summarize this. I came up with a little biblical axiom off of this chapter. This is original. So I just want you to bear with me. I want you to listen to the way I summarize this chapter. For God so loves His people that He does not always do what they think He ought. I love this. Karen said it yesterday. We were talking about this. His ways are not our ways. 
Don't you love it? He doesn't always do what you think he ought. For <laughs> he is always doing something wider, longer, and deeper than we could possibly ever begin to imagine in order that his immeasurable glory, okay, I've got love in here, and I'll, here comes the glory, in order that his immeasurable glory might be more fully seen and savored with the greatest possible clarity and intensity for uh, our inexpressible, eternal, and infinite joy. It's all right there. John 11. That's why I'm in John 11. Why are you in John 11, the Sunday before Christmas? That's why. Love, glory, joy. So I challenge you to reckon with the magnitude of that. And then I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say, in closing, I'm going to say, um, <laughs> you can't live that small. If you, if you say you believe it, you can't live that small. You just can't. It can't be ho-hum. If you really believe this, it, it, it can't be ho-hum. It won't be ho-hum. You will have to live it huge. You will not be able to restrain yourself. And if you are living it in some small, sheepish, pedestrian, denominational way, I say you need to repent and change your mind about God. You need to change your mind about who you think God is and how you need to respond to that God. That's what we've been talking a lot about these last few weeks. Love, glory, joy. It's John 11. It's God's love, it's God's glory, and it's our God-sized, God-focused, God-driven joy. It's Christmas. Jim, why do you go to John 11? The week before Christmas. That's why. I don't want you to forget, as we celebrate his birth, <laughs> who this baby is. Who this baby is. Let's pray together.